Hey friends, welcome back to the Magnus Podcast. This is John Johnson. Larissa is not here right now, but she is somewhere, probably happy. I want to let you know that courses are about to begin in the Magnus Fellowship. Another round of fall courses about to kick off. Some great instructors and texts lined up for you to enjoy. I think they're mostly full now, but you can check at magnusinstitute.org. Become a fellow today. Join the nearly 1,000 fellows getting a liberating education. Nothing else like it. Today's a special episode for me personally because we had a chance to sit down with an old teacher of mine, actually somebody who introduced me to philosophy studies when I was but a wee John Johnson at a community college, wayward and such, back in the day. His name is Amir Sabzavari. You'll like him. Enjoy this conversation. MagnusInstitute.org for more. College is a bubble. We're here to pop it. The Albertus Magnus Institute is reinventing the academy, offering education that's as free as it is free. Welcome to the Magnus Podcast. With your help, we are liberating the liberal arts. Now, your hosts, John Johnson and Larissa Bianco. Let's get started with a formal introduction. This is a very, uh, I feel blessed to be hosting this podcast now. Because I remember in the year 2001, back when a young John Johnson was attending his first community college classes, floating around, thinking I knew things. And a friend of mine named Yusuf said to me, you need to take a class with Amir. You were, you were one of those cool professors who everybody could call you by your first name. You probably still are. And so I said, okay. And I walked into this class thinking I knew things. And I need to thank you, Amir, because you, uh, 20 years ago, 20 some years ago now, broke me down and served as a certain midwife, not even a midwife, but like an OBGYN who was able to point to me that I was indeed floating in the beautiful darkness of a womb awaiting some sort of labor pains that will hopefully someday lead to birth. And that sort of pedagogy changed my life. I thought I knew things, I didn't. And you have a you have a beautiful way of of breaking things down, breaking humans down so that they can be rebuilt by something other than you. And so thank you for that. Amir Sabzavari, welcome to the Magnus Podcast. You're very kind. Thank you for having me. John, it's been a long time. <laughs> it's been way too long of a time. And I never forgot about you. And when I got into this institute and the work that we do, we like to seek out beautiful teachers. And I Googled around and was very pleased to find that you are still teaching. You're teaching in the uh, the deepest parts of Oakland now. You've You've moved away from the Sacramento suburbs of Sierra College, where I met you, and now you're teaching at Laney College in Oakland. Is that right? How long have you been at that? I've been here since 2004, and um, I actually left Laney in 2007 because I got a full-time position at Folsom Lake College. So uh, you're coming back, or you came well, back? You came yeah, back I came to back Folsom in 2007. You know, because okay. my parents are there. Uh, my my parents came here as immigrants in 1985. They sold everything just to be around their kids, and they bought a car wash. So uh, from 85, 1985 to about 2001, while I was teaching at Sierra, I washed cars and buffed cars and detailed them. <laughs> um, so because my roots are in Roseville, you know, I've always tried to come back, and I did come back to uh, Folsom. Uh, but things didn't work out too well, uh, so I resigned and came back to uh, Laney. And I had to do the whole interview process you know, all over again. I was lucky enough to get a job, and here I am after uh, 14, 15 years again. Wow. And this, you know, don't take this question the wrong way, but why didn't you ever pursue uh, the, you know, the four-year college university track? Is that market just too tough? I, but I, I kind of have a feeling that, your your gifts actually apply to the more remedial places. You know, the, it's an interesting question. When I was younger, when I started teaching, I never actually considered a four year school 
first year of the PhD, and I only, I had my dissertation. I wasn't done with the program yet. So it didn't enter my mind. And when you're young, you kind of miss a lot of, um, a lot of very important points about personal life, professional life. As you get older, you realize that a college level uh, may be a bit more difficult given your age, given your experience. Uh, you would want perhaps as to walk into a, a school or a program where students are a bit more mature, a bit more experienced. They've been touched by life to some extent. That they've put themselves back together a little bit. They have gained some stability. And uh, it's no different really than dating when you're 19 versus dating when you're like 35 or 45. At, at the age of 19, anything goes. But when you're 35, 45, hopefully you have learned a thing or two about life and you want to be around someone who is stable physically, stable emotionally, stable intellectually. So you don't walk into a hurricane every time you go home. Um, you know, I think... Uh, when you get a little older, college uh, students are very much like being a grandparent. You just don't have the energy to go back and forth with them all the time. And there is a there is a place in the dialogues of Plato where Aristotle was still a student at uh, Plato's Institute, and Aristotle, from what little history has revealed, he would always you know raise his hand, ask questions. But Plato was no longer a young man. And he would always say to Plato, yeah, I'm to Aristotle. Yes, yes, Aristotle, you're right. Now keep your mouth shut. Let me continue with my lecture. You know, <laughs> um, so when you're when you're a young kid, I think it's, uh, or a young uh, instructor, it's good to be at a college level. It's fun, exciting. When you get a little older, you want a bit more stability, a bit more maturity, and that's a four-year school, hopefully. But these days, you never know what you're walking into, really. Mm -hmm. So tell me how you teach. There's a certain way about you. You're a very interesting human. I've I've always noticed that the mark of a great teacher is somebody who is, I think, magnanimous and magnetic enough to draw the student into himself, but then always beyond himself. And that's really the worst sort of teacher is the one who makes it all about him or herself. And you don't do that. You're sort of an attractive enough personality. I think you're aware of that. And then you, you're always, but you're always pointing beyond yourself, hiding and dying in the process. Tell me a little bit about the secret sauce of your instruction. You know, I don't think anyone knows. I mean, I certainly don't know. All I know is that temperamentally, I'm an introvert. When I was 19, I met my own teacher with whom I worked for about 10 years. And then he passed a couple of years ago due to cancer. Um, I remember him asking me, are you ever going to write a book? And I said, write a book? No, I, I can hardly stand and walk. And later on, he said, do you think you'll ever go into teaching? I said, no, I have nothing to say. And, you know, when you when you work with someone and uh, you're filled with a certain set of histories and that person has the power and the charisma and the magnetism to make you into a blank slate, you kind of feel a little dumb. You feel confused. Uh, you're like in the dark night of the soul, you have no idea what you're doing, where you're going, uh, because whatever gave you value and purpose and meaning has been stolen by your teacher. You know, he demolished everything. And yeah. so from the age 19 to about maybe, I don't know, 30 or 30 some, you know, just before I started Sierra, I was trying to figure out what exactly it is that I'm interested and passionate in. And I knew it was philosophy and I knew it was religious ideas. I just didn't know what exactly about religion and philosophy are captivating and why I'm so passionate about these things. And when you're an introvert, you're very shy, you're very reserved. Internally, you're always in chaos. Um, and it's something I always tell my students, if you want to know the difference between an introvert and an extrovert, look at Jesus and compare him to Moses. Moses is always about society. It's always about doing good by your parents, doing good by your wife, by your neighbors. He always has his vision on the outside. Jesus, on the other hand, doesn't really much care about what's happening on the outside. He looks for the eternal, and that lives on the inside. Jesus is an intense introvert that invites you to kind of figure out who you are from within, as opposed to Moses or Confucius, who um, they all encourage you to be on the outside and fight for social justice. It's not that 
you know, Jesus doesn't do that. He just doesn't do, the, do it as much. And so when you are an intense introvert, uh, to some extent, you're a mystery to yourself. Now, when you ask, what is the secret of the way you teach? The truth is, I remember teaching my first class at Sacramento State University. And I was nervous because I didn't know how it's going to be, you know. Uh, you know, Jean-Paul Sartre had this wonderful saying that if you want to know something well, apply pressure to it. If you want to know how patient a man is, ask him if he is single, married, uh, and if he's married, how many children he has. You know, if he has six kids, you're looking at a saint. Because uh, this day and age, it's very difficult to have a job, to be professional, to have be married, to take care of your parents, and raise six children. And so when you apply a lot of pressure and you realize that the person doesn't crack, there is something very solid about that human being. And so, you know, before walking the classroom, you prepare, you take notes, you read a lot of books, you hope that you don't embarrass yourself, the students don't embarrass you. And it really, for the most part, is a shot in the dark. You walk into a classroom, you either shine or you're just all dark and gloomy. And I think I was lucky enough. And that's, you know, the, the word happiness, it, it's rooted in the word hap, which means luck. And I really think it's just a matter of luck. Um, I don't know what makes my classes interesting. All I know is that because of, I'm an introvert, I have a tendency of internalizing the experiences and having, I suppose, emotional or intellectual or spiritual teeth where I break apart the experiences, uh, look what lives inside them, look at the history, and then do my best uh, to kind of process, understand, and then uh, be able to express them in a way that is relevant to myself and relevant to the audience. But it really is, for the most part, a shot in the dark. No one knows. And I think if there was, if there was a how-to, I think Jesus could have done it to his disciples. Uh, not one would have betrayed him. I think Moses would have continued guiding his people instead of giving you know, the responsibility to his brother Aaron. I think Muhammad would have never fought for 22 years. I don't think Lao Tzu would ever leave China. I don't think Malcolm X would have gotten shot by his own people. But I think teaching and learning, they're both very, very, very mysterious. And despite, you know, academia coming up with SLOs and PLOs and ILOs, no one knows. Uh, I certainly don't know. Uh, you know, and I think the story of, in the gospel of Mark, as well as Luke, the prodigal son, it's just very telling of the human condition. You know, you're a human being, you make mistakes, your father tells you, you just don't have the capacity to listen. You're just not there. You lack the experience, you lack the maturity. You lack the age, you lack the insights, you lack the introspection. So you go out there and you waste your youth. You don't really examine passion, entertainment, pleasure. And because you're young and rich with imagination, uh, whatever the case may be you're rich with, you have no choice but to waste it. And I think the moment of teaching is when you're just broken. And I don't know how people get broken uh, at what stage. Um uh, and it's a brokenness that comes from inside. You know, it's like a Jesus inside you is born and you catch yourself. Um, something about you has a tendency of just coming out, having a glimpse of all the things that you have done. And there is this shame that comes from within. There is guilt that comes from within. There is remorse that comes from within. There is repentance that comes from within. No one needs to tell you how to do any of this stuff. It just happens to you. It's like an alcoholic. You know, he says, I'm a social drinker. His wife says, you're an alcoholic. He says, no, his wife leaves him. His kids leave him. And he may be a CEO of a company. It doesn't really matter. But at a certain point, there is this like breaking point. Uh, it's not that we don't have glimpses of it, we do, but to be broken in such a painful way where you're just broken, completely open, and you look within and you see all the misery and the disaster. Now, it's one thing to see, uh, like the prodigal son, to see. Uh, and he says, okay, you know what? I'll live with the horses. I'll live with the dogs and the cats. And he says, you know, I have a father. Maybe I can go and ask forgiveness. The ability to go back to your own roots, 
whether that root is your religion, whether it's your wife, whether it's your kids, whether it's God, it doesn't really matter. But you have to have a home that you turned your back to. You know, it's like, it's something that happens in, in marriage all the time. Uh, your wife says, you know, you've done something wrong. And you say, nah, no, nah, I haven't. She argues with you and you know what you've done is wrong. Uh, you scream and you shout, <laughs> you drive away, you go for a walk. <laughs> and then there comes a point, you know, it's dark. You're sitting in your car in the parking lot of Sierra College, perhaps. And you say, yeah, she was right and I'm wrong. And it takes so much courage, especially as a man, to go home and say, you know what? I was wrong and to apologize. And that's the prodigal son story. Um, and I don't know if there is anyone who has the how-to formula, you know, and it's um, and it, it's that which makes it so difficult. You know, it's uh, it's something that I'm sorry to say, but women experience so often, which is they try to educate their companion, their men companion, if they happen to be heterosexual. But men are so difficult to train and the poor woman has to wait and wait and wait and wait. And it doesn't matter how many books you read and it doesn't matter how many degrees you have and from what colleges you have your diplomas. You know, learning about things that really have value, it's a mystery. No one knows. I sure we don't know. Women are patient. It's its interesting you say luck because I look back on my life, you know, hopefully I'm about halfway through it. And I think, well, where would I be if I didn't meet Amir Sabzavari at Sierra College? I'd probably be contracepting my life away from a cubicle somewhere. And even after, after that, you know, I decided what you... Uh, pointed me toward this life of philosophy. I wanted to figure out a way to do it more systematically and 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 professionally, I guess. And so, you know, and, but even that, I I sort of stumbled into this great philosophy program at St. Mary's College, and here we are. But where would I be without all these things? I have no idea. But all I know is, if we're open to that sort of what I would call providence, good good things happen. So, one thing I want to ask you about specifically is your use of story in the classroom or mythos, what I would call sacramentality. You open your students' eyes to see that things mean things and that little things like, like seeds sort of give birth to ideas and little things point to other things. Uh, for instance, in class, I don't know if you're still doing this, we all watched The Matrix together. And as a 20-year-old student, I'm like, cool, we're watching The Matrix and then you started pointing out, well, this is Morpheus. He is John the Baptist. This is Neo. He is he is the one, uh, but he starts off as Thomas Anderson, the doubting son of man. And it's one of these things as a kid, I'm like, wow, this is mind-blowing, all these hidden meetings, you know, and I'm still doing it to the annoyance of all my friends and family now with like Christopher Nolan movies and things. Um, but you had a way of showing people that things are not as they seem. Uh completely and that and that they're actually pointing outside of themselves sometimes to transcendent things. So tell me about the use of story myth. What would you even call that? Um it's a really, really good question. I'm not really quite sure how to approach it. If I was to kind of um, just wing it for a moment, I would say the following. I think stories are very, very useful. Um, and the deeper, the older the culture, it probably may be the only way that you can house pain and misery and suffering and joy within the container of stories. Um, I think what you have in the young Jesus, because he is uh, to some extent, and, and forgive me, this is just the way I kind of tell stories, if you will. I think when you are a young teacher and teaching and learning and perhaps wisdom are profoundly mysterious and when someone asks you questions, you have the time, you have the energy, you have the creativity and the patience to just come up with stories and then allow your audience to go home and figure out what exactly those stories really mean. If you happen to be Moses and if you have 
happen to kind of have seen what the Romans have done to your people. And if there is a sense of urgency about you, it's not that you won't tell stories, but what you'll do is you'll go directly for the juggler. You'll tell them why things are the way they are. You don't have time to tell stories. You don't have time for people to go home. I mean, it may be a great thing for you and I at this stage in our lives to have children. And so when they ask us, for example, a question, we tell them a story. But if, for example, your son comes home and he's 20 and he says, Dad, I'm in love. I'm going to marry this person. And being a man of 50 or 60, having tasted the complexities of a married life in a society that's immensely secular and complicated and revolving around instant gratification, you don't have time to tell your son a story, have your son go home and play with the story to figure out whether or not he actually understands uh, the very message that you try to convey to him. What usually happens because of age, because of experience, because of shortness of time and urgency, you kind of sit your son down and say, listen, I want to tell you a story. It's about my own life. That I was 19. I fell in love. I did ABCD and it didn't work out. Don't make my mistake. Um, I think when you're dealing with a huge audience, storytelling is great. Um, it's, it's a way to captivate your audience. But to some extent, I think it's also the stage in which you are and how well you process ideas. One of the current, I think, visionaries, I think he's a bit contaminated now, is Jordan Peterson, you know, who is able to break down an idea, a concept, you know, and just put everything on the table and it'll just force you to look at all the different components that live. You know, it's kind of like, uh, when you ask your wife, for example, how do you make chicken tikka masala or pizza, whatever the case may be? And because she's really good at cooking, she's not going to tell you a story. She's going to break down all the ingredients, what you need to do, how you need to do it, at what stage you need to put it in the oven and for how long. Um, I think in my case, because I read a lot of stories and because introverts, uh, really identify and relate to stories so well. They have a tendency of just telling stories well. And again, remember, teaching really, for the most part, is a shot in the dark. You don't know if you're going to be good in the classroom or not until you walk into it and open your mouth. And then you will realize, you know, your, your worth and your soul. I think as I have gotten a bit older, I still tell stories, uh, but they have a different intensity now and they have a different purpose now. And I have a tendency of breaking things down now. I don't tell very many stories anymore. Uh, and if I do tell stories, I explain them really, 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 really well. I'm not just going to. Is that let because, them... let me just, let me interrupt. interrupt. Sorry. Is that because of the qu the quality of the student that you're no. now encountering? No. Why is that? I... I think what you do is you provide the story as the, the, finished product and then what you will do is you will uh, decipher all the various components that live inside the story you know uh, it's kind of like let's just say um, the story of the uh, what jesus says in one of the gospels that you can't make the grass grow by pulling it I mean, it is such a devastating thing to say that there is your son, there is your daughter, there is your husband, there is your wife, and you want to tell them something insightful, something wise, something transformative. They're just not ready. What do you do? Do you forgive them? Do you walk away? Do you do it by force? Do you hit them? Do you scream? Do you shout? Do you, what exactly do you do? And the message is, you know, you're going to encounter people at different stages in their life. They're going to be ready for some things, but not ready for other things. And just in case you have something valuable to share with them, if they're not at that stage, they can't listen. They can't hear. And you have a couple of options. You can either be like the father and the prodigal son that life and experience has told you that, you know, just wait, your son eventually will come back, hopefully. And you have an open door policy that life will eventually break your son 
hopefully he will have the courage to see, to regret, to repent, and to come back for forgiveness. Should I see him, I will run to him, not walk to him. I will run to him, embrace him, bathe him, give him new clothes, and say, it's okay. All young people make mistakes, but when you are young and rich and privileged and entitled with fantasies, with dreams, with hopes, you don't have the capacity to listen. And I think when you walk into a classroom and you tell them that particular verse and you add a few stories to it, then you unpack it. And then you sit back and you say, well, there is a reason why this person is playing with their phone. There is a reason why he's asleep. There is a reason why he's not interested. And then out of 50 or 60 people in the classroom, you say, okay, you know, I have five who are paying attention. I will look at the five, focus on the five, knowing full well I can make other people, I can force them to pay attention, to listen, to become interested. What I will do, like the farmer, I will plant seeds in the Gospel of Luke. But some of my students, because of their background, they're like concrete. They will never receive the seed. Some students are interested, but their life is just so busy. They have a wife, they have children, they have parents who are sick and old. Maybe they have a checkered past, a dicey past, and they want these seeds. They're interested, but they're just too many vultures in their life. Emotional vultures, you know, intellectual vultures, physical vultures that don't allow them to spend too much time with these seeds or ideas. And so these ideas eventually get crushed, stolen by life itself. And then you have five or six or seven good students. The seeds go inside them, but you need a whole host of things for for the seed to be nourished. You know, in some ways, I suppose you are extremely lucky. You know, you had a great history, perhaps a great background at the age of 20. You were rich with fantasies and dreams. You and I met at the right time. There were not too many vultures, you know, where the, the seed gets trampled upon and gets stolen by birds or just die in the middle of nowhere. And how it happened, no one knows how you were able to receive these ideas and have these ideas live inside you. And like a woman, allow these ideas to grow bigger and bigger and bigger inside you. You lose sleep, you lose rest, you're always agitated, you're always frustrated. You wake up in a gloomy mood, very much like a woman who's pregnant, always irritable, you know, to some extent at a certain stage of pregnancy. And then at a certain point, you give labor. You go to school, you get your master's, you have the capacity and the creativity to create your own school, to create your own institutes, to have your own people. And I don't know what the question was. Uh, forgive me for rambling on, but to some extent, I suppose everything is connected. So I kind of oftentimes lose it's, myself in no, ideas. That, that's very helpful. Do you think the the modern academy is characterized, if not caricature, caricaturized, by this perverse dogmatism where story and mythos are nowhere to be found because it's people telling you the way thing the way they think things are, the way they think things should be. And I guess my question is, without without making too much of a punching bag out of that idea, how uh, does 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 your use of myth and story protect you? Let you fly under the radar? Let you hide things that you couldn't just come out and say in your academic culture? Does that make sense? It does. Um... You know, I'm a loner by nature, and I'm a loner here on campus. Uh, I no longer create new courses to take before the curriculum committee because they don't like the title of my classes. They don't enjoy, for example, philosophy of death or philosophy of education or philosophy of love and sex. It's too much for them. And so uh, I think stories uh, do create a mask. Mm -hmm. or a castle in which you can hide. But I think uh, the more secure you feel about yourself and your position in life, you no longer rely on stories. You become somewhat blunt, uh, not crudely, but you become blunt in a very articulate and creative and educated way. Uh, you know, the, the thing about... Parents, especially American education, um, 
America is a secular culture. And when you have a secular culture that 95% of the force in education is directed towards money, towards security, whether it's physical, emotional, the humanities or philosophy or the social sciences don't really have much room to prosper, and rightly so. A secular culture means you have in the culture advertisements that create secular emotions, secular desires, secular thought processes. And all of a sudden, you have a school like yours that you want to approach students in a different way. You want to desecularize them. But the truth is the force of the culture is far too powerful. It doesn't stand a chance. It's very much like the, the farmer and the seed story, that despite the beautiful nature of your seeds, the culture will never allow them to prosper, you know. Uh, so why do we do this? And why do you do this? If it's a battle that can't be won. Well, you know, uh, when you look at the great traditions, the religious and philosophical traditions of the world, there is nothing happy uh, about their philosophy of life. Jesus never laughs in any of the Gospels. Socrates never gives us a belly laugh in any of the dialogues of Plato. Uh, you may kind of, you know, have a grin like you and I once in a while while we are having a conversation, but it's not a belly laughter because none of these heroes really saw human life and human existence as something joyful. It was filled with struggle. Uh, I mean, the life of the teachings of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, that life is suffering, that's not a very happy philosophy of life. Or the verse from, you know, the Gospels that do not store your treasures down here, uh, that we are born in sin. None of these ideas are a happy philosophy of life. But I think the founder of these ideas, the people in whom these ideas are born, they are really pregnant with these ideas, and these ideas have a great amount of emotions and intensity inside them. And whenever you eat something, eventually you have to get rid of them. And I think the great teachers of humanity are just have eaten too much wisdom, too much insight, too much knowledge, too much understanding. And they use the rest of us as like toilet bowls. You know, they tell us how things are. And it's very, very difficult to hear. And, uh, you know, we have a tendency of making very difficult philosophies of life into joyous ones. I mean, look at what has happened to the philosophy of yoga. Now, everybody is walking around with a mat. There is nothing wrong with that. But the premise <laughs> of yoga is you have a light force and you have a dark force. And these two things have to come together. And it's going to be tough. You know, it's like a, a wife who sees her husband slowly disappearing into the world of alcohol. She is light. He is dark. She loves him. He loves her. She doesn't want to let him go. And these two forces need to come together. There is so much struggle. And hopefully at the end, there is this beautiful union where the husband comes to understand and forgive himself and ask for forgiveness. And the wife understands. And he, she forgives and forces the kids to forgive. Uh, so, but because we don't deal with that, you know, and the add to it, the fact that because of the speed of the American culture, nobody has time to go home and figure out what these stories mean. It's a how-to culture. Everything is like Ikea. You like a table, go to the basement, aisle 25, shelf 22, grab the stuff, go home, unpack it, you know, look at the pamphlet, follow the steps, and there you have it. This is not a culture that promotes, encourages, inspires thinking, reflecting. We think because thinking has to do with the external world. Reflecting, you take something in. You reflect on it. You introspect. You examine. You break it open. You feel the pain. But it's not enough just to feel the pain because you need to have a culture that tells you when pain comes to you, be patient. You know, you know it's, it's a wonderful thing when you read the book of Job. When everything in Job's life falls apart, he doesn't blame his mom. He doesn't blame his dad. He doesn't blame the politics. He just says everything comes from God. He demands answer. Pain has a religious tone to it. You know, today when I have students coming to my office or coming to my classes, their pain is secular. It has to do with their job. It has to do with their parents. It has to do with finances. And you can't teach the way, I suppose, teaching 
uh, was meant to. You know, I think mm-hmm. there is there is this wisdom about Aristotle, about Plato. Even when you read the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus speaks to his disciples in a certain way, and he thinks, he speaks to the public in a completely different way. And when his disciples ask him, why don't you talk to the public the way you speak to us? And he says, you know, because you guys are just different. You're ready for some things that the public isn't. So when we talk about current education, there are lots of different things to consider. You know, uh, World War II, America coming as a superpower, technology, capitalism, you know, suicide rate, depression rate, divorce rate. It's too much for the mind of an 18-year-old to try to figure out what the hell to do with all of this stuff. It's true. Um, I want to just highlight something you mentioned earlier. You said that you 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 mentioned Jordan Peterson. Since Jordan Peterson became known, I I've always noticed a similarity between him and you in this particular sense. You're both deeply familiar with and able to retell myth and familiarity with archetype and the significance of things and the cross-pollination of different traditions. But neither of you have seemed to at least publicly committed um, to one of those teachers. And and I guess Christ would be the one that, that I want to that I want to ask you about. Um, if he if he identifies himself as the source of all of this confluence of myth and the, the sort of the living archetype. Um, why, why is that? I mean, you've always, I, I, other people have identified you as a Sufi mystic. Uh, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian per se. I don't think I don't, I don't want to make any judgment upon you for anything like that, but what do you make of that? Um, and, and why, why don't you publicly confess affiliation with any one tradition that you're able to so eloquently teach upon? You know, there was a show on TV some time ago. It may, may be canceled now, uh, and there may be different versions of it. Um, it's called Chopped. It's where you yeah. have these great cooks or great chefs coming on, uh, four of them at a time, and they're all given a mystery basket. Now, I suppose one mystery basket could be Christianity. The other mystery basket could be Judaism. The other mystery basket could be Taoism. And the other one would be Islam. And then you have to figure out what you want to do with all these traditions in one basket. And I think if you are a really, really, really good chef, what you want to do, you want to do your best to take what you see good, what you see as your capacity to relate to Buddhism, to Hinduism, to Christianity and Islam, and come up with a great dish that people can eat and enjoy. It's not so much, you know, whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist. Do you have the proper teeth to chew the, to break down the ideas, to chew them, to process them, and then deliver an expression that is, I think people just naturally are captivated. You know, our senses, our five senses. Imagine you go to a party and there is a beautiful human being standing in a corner. The truth is you don't need anybody to tell you whether or not you're attracted. Your eyes, they, I don't know how it functions, but there is something about us that just gravitates towards anything that's attractive, either attracted to your eyes or your nose or your tongue or your touch or your taste or your ears. And I think there is something about us that when you speak in a certain way, your audience, it doesn't matter who it is. You know, I mean, if you if you believe the story of Mary Magdalene, there is something about her, despite having become contaminated. She just listens to a couple of sermons and there is something about the way this man speaks. Or when he goes to the house of Matthew. Everybody's drunk or almost drunk, and Matthew's a tax collector. He doesn't care about religious ideas, but there is something about Jesus. There is something about the way he speaks that pulls something out of Matthew. I mean, that's the word education, to bring out. He pulls something out, and Matthew is just, you know, he's trapped. 
And so much so that he leaves his wife, his kids, his country, and he just follows to a destination unknown. A right. man he hardly knows. Um, and I don't think it's so much about giving yourself a title or a label. You know, um, you know I got to tell you this, John. When I was going to school and getting all these ridiculous degrees, and I would talk about some of the stuff with my father. And um, my father is a simple man. You know, he has an education of the sixth, uh, the sixth grade. That's how far he went to. And that was usual for our, our country back home some 50, 60, 70 years ago. And deep down, I always felt a little embarrassed that he's not as educated. He's not as sophisticated. As years have passed, I've realized that he is such a good man. At the age of 50, he left his country. He left his people. He left his brothers and sisters and parents to come to take care of two kids, two bratty kids. And he, even though he had a great job back home, he started washing cars for the next 22, 23 years. To this day, he's almost 90, and we still have the car wash, and I still go there, and he still washes cars. And at this age, I look at myself, and I say, man, if I become half of what my father is, I'd die a happy man. And I suppose the point I'm trying to make is there was a point where I imagined a bachelor's degree to be a profound value or a master's degree or a PhD <laughs> or being a professor or being given this title or that title. But at the end, you know, when you remove the emotional and intellectual clothing and you stand before, I suppose, the mirror or life naked, you realize that you are far less than your father, even though he has no degrees. When you're in the presence of your father, you amount to nothing. and. Um, and I think that's what it is about these great teachers. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you are. There is something about them that undress you without you wanting to. And you're inspired, even if it's only for a moment. And that inspiration brings about so many questions. Now, where I am right now, if my students come to my office and say, I'm inspired, I want to do philosophy, the first thing I say to them, do you have money? Do you have a wife? Do you have a job? Do you have parents? If any of these components are missing in your life, you know, go back to life, fix those, and then come back, you may be ready, you know, because if you still have baggages, you know, it's like if you're still stuck on your ex, you're going to waste my time. This is not going to be a very solid relationship. You know, this morning I had a student. He is 45. He's married. He's got two beautiful kids. And he wants to change everything and do, go to philosophy. And he says, this is what I've been thinking about since the school has started. And I look back and I say, this is a man who has a wife. This is a man who's got two kids. He has a job. If he wants to become intensely consumed by philosophy... He's going to lose his wife. He's going to disappear from his family's life. So I said, you need to drop this class or not come to class. I'll just give you a grade. Just go back, you know, take care of your family and come back another time if I'm still around. You know, there is too much to lose. Now, if you were to ask me, well, why is it that someone becomes so fascinated? I don't know. Right time, right place. But I'm far more cautious now than I was some years ago, you know. If let, let me okay, so let me let me drill down if I could, Amir. Of all these beautiful traditions, and there are many, and there are many beautiful things that you could take from each one of them. It's good to be amazed by the self-emptying of Siddhartha. It's good to be um amazed by the uh I guess military prowess of Muhammad and conviction, sure. But then there's this one man who unlike the others got out of the dirt. And I think that's like a first question. Do you believe that or not? Is that true or not beyond the mythical significance of the resurrection event that we all partake in every day after dying, you know, like you said, you know, sitting in that parking lot and then realizing I should go home to my wife. Well, there's an element of resurrection there, but then if you sort of overlay that against the source of that myth, which is the the actual historical resurrection of Christ. 
you're sort of posed this question, you know, does, did that happen or did that not happen? And, and you said the power of attraction of all the myths and that's true, but the good is diffusive of itself. And you have Christ identifying himself as the good itself and claiming that he must draw all men to himself through his death and beyond it. Does that not pose a certain question to you that demands an answer? What question is that? Do you accept this? I mean, do, does it is it true? Because if it's true, wouldn't that change a lot? I think About if the, you have yeah, I go think ahead. if you have a man named Jesus, and if at a certain point in his life he was anointed, he was touched by God. And if God is perfection, if God is eternal, if God is immortal, if God is without blemish, then that perfection lives in him. And if I am around him, if I am in his presence, I have no choice but to capture that perfection according to my own capacity. And I think the story of Jesus is very, very interesting. And I think it's a story of really uh, whether you want to consider him as a God or as a man who was touched by God, what you have is if you remove the person Jesus and replace that person with just wisdom, no more mention Jesus, no more mention Christ, but just wisdom. And wisdom is nothing but perfection. In the Gospel of Mark, what you have is wisdom always being misunderstood. Always. What you have in the Gospel of Matthew, wisdom wants to go and just speak of wisdom to his own people, to the people closest to him. In the Gospel of Luke, what you have is wisdom coming to realize his own people don't really get it, so he can open the door to anyone. In the Gospel of John, he comes to realize it's no longer a time to tell stories to anybody. Nobody listens. I'm just going to tell them I am the absolute perfection. Yeah. I am God. That's a and strange think, claim. And it's, you know, it's the only gospel where he refers to himself almost 50 times. I am this. I am the bread. I am. I am. I yeah. am. I mean, he's yeah. using the word, the very word that Moses had identified to him as, as the name of God. The Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And then yeah. you have Tom, Thomas making this profession, my Lord, my God. Right, right. Isn't that, isn't that claim unique among traditions? And, and don't we have an obligation to either reject it as lunacy or accept it and all of its implications? You know, I think if you were to go to India, as I did, and even if you were to go to certain parts of the Middle East, you know, there there is this long tradition of people, regular human beings who have been touched by something mysterious, claiming that they, in fact, are God. Um, I think anyone who has been touched by something as profound and as divine, uh, we have no choice but to accept the divinity that lives inside them. Uh, so in that regards, you have no choice but to accept all the claims that Jesus made about himself, which is he was the absolute perfection, and he was, you know. Yes, uh, but but we can't make that claim about everybody, which is which is why in John's gospel, the beginning of that gospel begins with the apophasis, the self-denial of the Baptist, as the forerunner who in word and deed prepares for Christ to make this claim and for it to be received in our lives. But that claim of John the Baptist is precisely, are you the Messiah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Are you Elijah? I am not. So, so that the claim of Jesus, I am, must begin and be received with John's admission, which is, which is also unique in the history of thought that he is not God. Right. And so, if you were to tell uh, John the Baptist, namaste, right? The God in me sees the God in you. He would say, keep your namaste, right? I'm, I'm not God. There is a one who is. And even John the Baptist sees him in the darkness of the womb, 
and rejoices in this darkness. But then he, even he himself, I must decrease, I must decrease, right? And he himself dies in in this doubtful, doubtful, dark place of a literal prison, loses his head, right? And that he is he is the, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, but he's the wisest born of man. Why is he the wisest born of man? Because the natural power of man, apart from God and his grace, the natural power of man at its best can terminate in the realization and living of this truth that you are yourself, not the truth. And that's how God is born, right? But that, again, that's unique. There's no, there's no other tradition that conveys that, I think. That's true. In that sense, you're very right. It is very true that amongst all the sages and messiahs and prophets, um, he is the only one. But I must also footnote that it took some time for that story to be created that way, in that particular way. Uh, but putting the academics and the inter- intellectual and in, you know historical aspect of this aside, there is this poem that's uh, by Rumi, Ab kamju tishnigi abar bedas, ta bejushat abad az balabu past. That if you're thirsty, if you're really, really, really thirsty, then you will enjoy every drop of water. If, on the other hand, you're not very thirsty and you have 50 gallons of water sitting next to you, you're not going to appreciate any drop that enters into you. I think if you happen to be very hungry for truth and wisdom, if you're very hungry for the presence of divinity or God, you can find all of that in Jesus. It's, you're absolutely right. If, on the other hand, that hunger and that thirst isn't there, it simply becomes an intellectual game, you know, uh, and it's enjoyable. There is nothing wrong with that. Yeah. But And so far as your question, the uniqueness of Jesus amongst all the prophets and all those who have come before him or after him, it's very true. Yeah. And I think practically we have this other offer from Jesus. Like you give great advice to your student who wants to study philosophy. And you said, well, do you have all the practical affairs in order? and stable so you can come and do this thing which will otherwise consume you that's true but you sort of have an opposite call from jesus who says leave leave all behind and follow me and then you'll get everything in abundance that you know that you need it even if you die naked alone on a cross you'll still have everything you need so i think that and that in that sense you know um there is sort of a lower bar of practical application that can be achieved through this invitation of Jesus who calls us to follow him now, love, uh, love him as he loves us and believe like a child, right? It's more accessible. It's accessible to anybody, but like the grain uh, or the seed of mustard that grows into something great, you can find everything you were looking for. It's true. It's true. If you happen to have such a faith and if you happen to have such a firm belief then yes, when someone comes to you and says, I want to study philosophy, you say, yes, you pursue it. You know, as we say in Persian, God who has given you teeth will also provide bread. So don't worry about bread. (laughs) That's good. That's Uh, good. But at the same time, I think because we live in such an insecure time and because most of the myths and religious elements have been sucked out of this culture and it's so very secular and so very meaty and so very physical. I think it would be profoundly dangerous to simply tell people, okay, you want to do this, just have faith and do it. Because the truth is life is enormously complicated. Um, You're right. You know, and the truth is, even when you look at the Gospels, the truth is not everybody was able to follow him. Even those who believe Most aren't. Most aren't. Yeah. And even those who were very close disciples to him, in fact, all of them betrayed him. Uh, I don't really, it doesn't really matter at what point they came to realize that they were wrong and he was right. But while he was alive, uh, they weren't able to understand his message, you know, and to some extent, you know, I don't think we are better people than those who lived some 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, you had tiny villages of 500. Everybody knew everybody. 
violence was non-existence unless it came from the outside. You know, there was no porn, there was no alcoholism the way we know it today, there was no loneliness, there was no depression, there was no divorce, none of, none of the kind of evils of today's world lived in those times. And yet- Even 20 point, years ago, Amir, I mean, even, even when, I, when I was your student, right? Yeah. There was yeah. no such thing as a transgender. There was no such sure. thing as having, you know, these uh, little pornography factories sure. walking around in your pocket with you yeah. all day long. How do you, I mean, just in the time that you've been teaching, you've been teaching for 25 years or something, maybe more. How do you, um, how do you deal with that? Well, like as, as the culture becomes more and more hostile to wisdom, what is your response? Does that make your work harder? Well, it's certainly much more difficult now than it was before because there are more things to overcome, uh, not only as teachers, but there are more things to overcome as students. And it also depends on where your students are. You know, Sierra College was 90% Caucasian, uh, yep. mostly came from relatively good background. When you talk about inner city school, that's not the sort of privilege you get. Um, you mostly come from... Uh, houses that have been divided and broken. People come from, you know, a good amount of depression and loneliness and just, you know, various disabilities. And so the only thing you can do is use the difficulties that people suffer from today, but put them in a very philosophical, you know, way and express them philosophically in a way that they can relate to and understand. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna walk into my class and talk about Plato, but I will talk about beauty. I will talk about beauty that they see in their companion. I will talk about beauty that they see in drinking a good amount of alcohol to dim the pain that they feel on the inside. And in that way they can kind of gravitate towards becoming attracted to Plato to some extent in philosophy. But I'm not going to use academic term terminology. Uh, because that's going to be a turnoff for them. That's not where students are today. You know, I don't know if the current data is accurate, but if it is that eight out of 10 Americans suffer from mild to intense depression, you know, you really have to kind of reconsider your position as an educator that how do you want to approach information? How do you want to approach expression of that information? How do you want to approach education altogether? Because when someone is depressed, they're unreachable. And the question is, yep, well, yep. what triggers do you have to use? And how do you want those triggers to kind of explode inside someone in a way that's not violent and hostile, where it's much more welcoming that allows them to reflect and introspect and maybe put the pieces of their lives back together. It's going to take some time. And so I think it's difficult on everybody. You know, all the things that used to work uh, maybe 20 years ago, about 80, 70, 80% of them are no longer practical. It doesn't work. Right. Yeah. And I've met, I've known good teachers who have just throw, thrown in the towel because of it, uh, because there are the, the bulk of their students have become unreachable, which is a really tragic thing, you know, and especially as a teacher, you, you think yourself the hero that's going to walk in and crack any nut, but yeah. it's not that easy, huh? I think as long as you have a good amount of passion inside you, and the only way you can have passion is for you as a teacher to be a good student. I mean, be a good student of life, and it has to be organic. It has to be natural. And as long as that passion lives inside you, you have no choice but to captivate other people. It, it, it's really not up to you. And you're not the creator of that passion. It just lives inside you. Um, and it'll be much more difficult for you to just give up and walk away. But I do think that at a certain point in, you know, near 60s or late 60s, there comes a point where mentally you simply don't have the capacity uh, to be around people or to be around these ideas. Your physical body is slowly decaying. You know, um, you know. I don't know if you know this or not, but Rumi's father, Bahauddin, he was about 83. Rumi was a young kid. There came a point that his father, Rumi's father, despite being one of the most famous Sufis of his time, he simply didn't have the mental energy to walk into an environment and give a sermon 
you know, he had fallen victim to old age, he had fallen victim to sickness. And after a while, the ideas are no longer interesting or important. It, I, it reminds me of a quote from Aldous Huxley, that it doesn't matter how great of a human being you are, in the end, your companions are going to be sickness and vomit, which is very true. You know, Can't wait. Yeah, yeah. There comes a point where these ideas kind of take a backseat and you're in the presence of realities of life. You get old, you get sick, and then you got to figure out where you want to die, how you want to die. If uh, you have a will and if taking care of the practical businesses of life, you know. Yep. It's true. Amir, I could talk to you for hours and I'd actually like to, uh, would you join us again on this podcast sometime? And maybe Absolutely. Anytime, John. Anytime. That's great. And where can people find your YouTube channel? They can just Google my name. And I think the first couple of things that come up uh, is the YouTube channel. So we'll put, we'll put it in the show notes. Okay. And uh, God bless the work that you do. Um, I, you, I, I really wanted to have you here to thank you for what you did in my life. I don't know where I'd be without you. And I know there's countless other stories, probably a lot like mine. So even though the work, I, you probably had no idea what you were doing with me, but uh, a lot of, <laughs> I didn't know you had no idea. Right. <laughs> and that's, that's the beauty of being a teacher is that you're, you're planting seeds that you don't necessarily get to harvest, right. Or, or see the fruits because you got to move on to the next field in uh, the inner city of Oakland sometime. So good job for the work you've done. And uh, we'll see how this all works out for both of us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Amir. God bless. Take care. Bye-bye. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.